The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So, very nice to see some familiar faces and also to see some new faces. Adrian was saying I haven't been here for a few months, months, but actually I think it's been a few years. <laughs> I have been teaching online, but um, I stayed for the last two rains retreats at uh, Newbury Buddhist Monastery, and that was when we had lockdown or semi-lockdown or whatever lockdown. <laughs> so we were doing a lot of the teachings online. So it's very nice to um, be here with you in uh, person. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention as well before we get into the talk and the talk today will be the fourth talk about the Brahma Viharas and the last Brahma Vihara is Upeka and that is equanimity or balance as I like to call it but today is Mother's Day <laughs> so I thought can we somehow connect these things and it's actually not so difficult I think mothers they have to be very, very patient. And patience is one of those things which is very closely connected to upeka, to balance. And they have to be very, very balanced as well. And they very often actually do think about their children much more than they think about themselves. So they try to help, they try to reach out, they try to do things for, for other beings, which fits in really, really nicely with the, all the Brahma-viharas. But the balance there is very, very important. If they are balanced, if they are grounded, then that is something they can pass on to their children. And that's what they will have within themselves when they grow up, when they go out into the big whatever world, big good world, big bad world, big whatever world you want to call it, <laughs> then they have the stability that they need and the balance that they need when they have had it in their um, early childhood. Okay, good. So I do have some slides, usually. There we go, yep. So... Brahma Viharas, if you haven't followed um, the talks before, uh, I try to find terms or words that kind of make sense in a modern uh, way. So I call them the four highest hangout places for the mind. So if we can hang out there, it's a really safe and good place to hang out. And uh, I have all the four here. So the first one in Pali is Metta. The second one is Karuna. The third one is Mudita. And the last one is Upeka. Again, here try to find some terms that have a bit of a meaning in, uh, in modern life. So love, care, joy, and balance. So the first three I've already described in a whole talk, so if you want to go back to that, they are available online. Now, so balance, when I thought about it for a little while, can be looked at from two perspectives. So we can think about grounding ourselves, stabilizing ourselves, finding composure, finding calm when we are not balanced. And I think that is very often the case. <laughs> so maybe we'll be talking about that part 
much more, but there are two approaches. So if you are not balanced, if you are not so grounded, that's when we try to find a way back to that groundedness, stability and balance. But the other way, of course, is being firmly established and even-hearted, non-reactive, and then responding from that place. And of course, that is the ideal situation. So if you have a meditation practice, and that is something you can do every day, say, for example, in the morning, where you bring up that stability, and then try to maintain it as well as you can throughout the day. And that is, and I think I'll be talking about this um, more uh, throughout the talk, that is basically the default state of a fully enlightened being. So they are firmly established, they are completely even-hearted, they have a pure mind and they are non-reactive. So they really represent um, the deep upeka to the fullest extent possible. And then they act from there. But uh, since we are not all fully enlightened here, <laughs> we will be looking at uh, the first approach much more together today. So how can we get back in touch with or maintain uh, to hang out in an open and spacious stillness? So when we are practicing balance in the right way, stillness will always be something which arises as a byproduct. And with the stillness also comes contentment. So when Ajahn Brahm teaches about Upeka, teaches about what I coin balance here, he also talks about contentment. So it's not a kind of a vegetable state where nothing is going on. <laughs> there is something going on, but what is going on is very, very wholesome. And contentment can be very quiet but it is still a, a mental state, so to speak. And when we have that, we're also able to be resilient. A word that gets thrown around a lot in psychology today, and uh, I guess in Dhamma talks and everywhere, everywhere as well. And that resilience actually comes from having this beautiful quality of uh, upeka. So, finding balance and not losing it. So one obvious question, I guess, is what throws you, what throws us off balance? And I just want to pause here for a little while so you can reflect on it a little bit. And if some people are even happy to share some of those things, I'd be happy to listen and to, um, to you know, share it with the group so we all kind of have an understanding. It's most likely similar things that throw us off balance. Incompetence, okay. All right, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, please. Right, yes. Impulsiveness, yes, please. Anxiety, yes, that can definitely unbalance us as well. Yes, yes. Yes, please. How can we know we are off balance when we don't know what is balance? 
Um, I do think we all have some moments of peace, of stillness, of of feeling that things are going okay, and that we feel safe. It's like balance, you know, when you're walking. <laughs> you kind of feel, okay, you, you're okay walking. And then when you get shaken up or when you get kind of, you know, you stray a little bit, you kind of feel you're off. So I think we all have some kind of feeling of balance, hopefully. <laughs> when things calm down, when things become still, when things are, are okay. And then we can kind of compare it with that. Um, off balance also, you know, means, you know, the thinking is going really strongly. The defilements, whatever the, our, you know, defilements are, they're usually very strong. So that is what is active. And what is absent is the clarity, the stillness, the peace. So I think we can get a feeling for this. But please, yeah, if you have more questions about it, after I've gone through the talk, we can elaborate on it. So the w one of the ways, again, how uh, we can talk about things that throw us off balance are the four worldly winds or actually the eight worldly winds altogether, but there's four positive ones and four negative ones, or four we um, judge as positive and four we might judge as, as um, uh, negative. The eight worldly winds, they're also called the eight worldly conditions. And I quite um, like to think about it like the wind. So if something is not stable, then the wind can actually shake it. The wind can move it all over the place. And uh, we, we, we chant in some of the suttas that we are like the indakila, that we are like the, the stake which has been planted firmly in the ground that doesn't move, that doesn't waver. Okay, what are those worldly winds? If you want to uh, look this up, this is from Anguttara Nikaya 8.5. Uh, and it says, because the eight worldly conditions revolve around the world, and the world revolves around the eight worldly conditions. What eight? And I think most of you have heard about them. Gain and loss. So we get something, we are happy, we lose something, we are unhappy, and that might be so many different things. That might be, you know, possessions, but it might, might be relationships, it might be people we, we lose, it might be the freedom we lose. Um, the health we lose, so many things we can lose. And that can destabilize us if we are not firmly grounded, if we are not resilient. Fame and disrepute or disgrace. So, um, yeah, I guess with social media and all these things, a lot of people are after these things, after the, the likes and after the exposure and after, you know, being talked about. And basically, when people do talk about you, there is two ways they can talk about you. <laughs> One way is in a positive light, which can make you famous in that sense. And the other one is in a negative light. One of the problems there is we have to realize that we don't really have that much control over this as we think. What people are thinking and what people are saying about us um, is to a big degree out of our control. And once we get too involved in it, it can actually um, really destabilize us, really throw us off balance. Then praise and blame, 
are a bit similar, but still different. So Ajahn Brahm often um, says, you know, gets, he gets praised for all sort of, sort of things, for things he's done, but also for things he hasn't done. <laughs> and he gets get blamed for things he's, he might have done or might have not have done. And even someone like the Buddha had to endure all these things. So even though you have a fully enlightened being who has the best of intentions, does the best things that are possible, but they will still be perceived in either of those two ways, and praised or blamed. And then the other one here is pleasure and pain. The Pali words there are sukha and dukkha that you might have heard about. Sweetness and bitterness, so to speak. And they come in all sorts of forms, of course, in our bodies, but also as mental states. So that's a little bit of an umbrella there, but uh, hopefully we can go a little bit more into the mind states as well that are connected with these kind of things. There's a bit of poetry in that um, sutta there as well, which goes as follows. Gain and loss, fame and disgrace, praise and blame, and pleasure and pain. These qualities among people are impermanent. They are transient. They are perishable. So if we realize they're like the seasons, they come and go. One day you're famous, a couple of days later you might not be famous anymore, <laughs> and then it might go up again. So it goes up and down with the uh, pleasure and pain and all these other things as well. So what does it mean to have upekka now? A clever and mindful person, Hajan Sujata says clever here, uh, knows these things and sees them as perishable, knows they are impermanent, knows they will change. And desirable things do not disturb their mind, nor are they repelled by the undesirable. And so that gives us already a little bit of an understanding there. The pushing away or the trying to pulling towards us, um, uh, the repelling the undesirable, and to try and grab and keep the desirable ones, that is one of the problems there if we have a very strong reaction. Then we are actually not balanced. Then we are actually not um, doing the right things. So both favoring and opposing are cleared and ended. There are no more. Knowing the stainless, sorrowless state, they who have gone beyond rebirth, understand rightly. And of course, again, here we are talking about the highest principle where all these things have been understood, seen as they are, and let go of. And then those winds don't move us anymore. They don't move the mind anymore. They don't um, propel us to run around like headless chickens at times. Because when these mind states arise, like anger, for example, is one of those, we start to do things that we wouldn't do when we would be in our right minds, when we would be calm, when we would be peaceful, when we would be wise, when we would be clear. Okay, so that is from the Anguttara Nikaya 8th, number 5 there. Now, I'm borrowing something from another religion there. <laughs> you might have seen this used with uh, Christianity, and I don't know exactly which psalm it comes from, but it actually applies for this here. So to live in the world, but not to be of the world. And that actually means being in a state of upeka when I reflected on this. And 
How it actually came up, or the kind of anecdote that I have around this, is uh, when Ajahn Brahm was teaching us at Bodhinyana Monastery, usually when you come to ordain uh, in Perth, you get two years of training during the rains retreat. And one of those trainings, uh, Ajahn Brahm usually goes through the word of the Buddha, and the other one, he goes through a, a set of suttas. And in one of those sessions, he was explaining to us that very often the way he perceives, the way he feels, the way he sees the world is barely touching, is barely overlapping with how other um, people see the world, how they perceive the world. And that basically kind of tied into this um, statement for me. So it really depends how we are perceiving things. We live in the same world. We experience the same worldly winds. We experience the same emotions that go through our minds. But how we perceive and how we respond, that is actually the crucial part. So now I would like to go through a few visualizations. So it's like um, the similes that are often used in the suttas, which hopefully help us to get a bit more of a deeper understanding what uh, upeka, what balance is like, and to get a feeling as well. I usually try to evoke a feeling in people with these kind of things. And I think the Buddha tries to do the same thing when he has um, similes. They're not, not all from the suttas, but uh, I think they are still useful. So the first one here is the firmly rooted tree. So we talked about resilience, and when I think about resilience, I very, very often take this um, picture of the tree. So the tree has a firm trunk, is firmly rooted in the ground, but still has the flexibility in the leaves and in the branches to adapt and sway in the wind and to not be broken by it. I think in uh, Asia very often the bamboo is taken as an example because the bamboo bends but it doesn't break. So that is a good uh, way of getting closer to what upeka means. Then the soundproof room. Ajahn Brahm often talks about the, the um, what is it called, the padded cell, <laughs> which brings up a few other things that I don't really want to bring in here. But um, we do have a very peaceful, nice meditation hall in Newbury Buddhist Monastery for the people who were able to go there and sit there. Uh, in the, uh, on, the, on the monk's side. And it is so nice and peaceful because it is well insulated, the room, but it also has sound panels. So basically, upeka is like the sound panels. So if a sound comes, it gets absorbed by the sound panel and it becomes uh, quiet and it becomes peaceful. And that is basically a very good simile for the thinking we were talking about before. So something is happening, and then we create noise in our mind as a response to what has happened. And if we have like Swiss mountains from where I'm from, <laughs> and it's bouncing off all those Swiss mountains backwards and forwards through the valley, you get echoes and echoes and echoes of what has actually happened. So that is when there is no Pekka. But if you would have, I don't know, a lot of forests on those mountains or things that actually absorb the sound, soundproof the environment, then 
all that dies down. And it dies down by itself. We don't have to do anything. We put the soundproofing in place and then it leads to this uh, stillness and to this calm. And then that is another word that is often used. I just uh, read through one of the talks that Ajahn Brahm gave about Upeka as well recently. And he talks about the silent observer there. So we are observing and we are silent. We are just listening, but we are not reacting to it. And he had this other beautiful kind of um, simile in there, which he raised. And he said, it's like the armless observer. <laughs> so you don't have any arms. So you can't mess. You can't interfere with what is happening. You are kind of stuck there. We have a pilot here with us. So we all trust the pilot when we are stuck in the plane because we can't fly it. <laughs> we are stuck in our seat. So we can observe. We can look out the window and we can, you know, be happy about the clouds or, or be, uh, be concerned about the smoke which comes out of the engine. <laughs> well, we can't do anything about it. And that is um, part of Upeka. But we will be talking about what needs to be done at some stage. But to develop Upeka, we first have to let all these things die down, all these defilements lessen, and then we have more clarity to actually do what we need to do. So, the silent observer. And then another simile which is actually used in the suttas, and also, I think, in Asia quite a lot, is the mirror there. So, when the water of a lake becomes so clear, so undisturbed, that there is no ripples even, that all the sound has died down at that stage, all it does is it reflects. And that's the same thing with a mirror. That is basically the armless observer. The mirror can't do anything. The mirror reflects, though, what's going on. And uh, it has a clear reflection when the surface is clear of that lake or of that mirror. And then the last one that Ajahn Brahm often raises as well is the lotus. So the lotus is a, is a symbol which is used a lot in Buddhism because it grows out of the water, it grows out of the muck, it grows out of the dirt, <laughs> but it goes above the surface of the water. It opens up and it is completely bright and, uh, and uh, pure, basically. Even though some of those outer petals that protect it might be a little bit dirty, a bit scrubby, but the inside is really pure, and it actually repels um, liquids. It repels dust. It just, nothing can settle on it. And that's where the word analia comes from, where nothing settles, where nothing remains. It just washes off. So, that is pure upeka, pure balance. And we do have a few examples of this, and one of them is in the suttas here. So the Buddha is giving some advice to his son. Uh, it's the longer advice to Rahula uh, in the Majjhimanikaya 62. And he uses the elements here. So he says, Rahula, meditate like the earth. Meditate like fire, like water, like wind. For when you meditate like the earth, fire, water, or wind, pleasant and unpleasant contacts will not occupy 
your mind. And often it says in the suttas, they won't occupy and remain in your mind. Suppose they were to toss both clean and unclean things on the earth, like feces, urine, spit, pus, and blood. The earth isn't horrified, repelled, and disgusted because of this. In the same way, meditate like the earth, or meditate like the fire, the water, or the wind, who doesn't have any of these reactions to it. And that's what Ajahn says with the, with the lotus. He says, even if we pour Chanel number no. five over it or something which smells really nice, it drips off all the same. <laughs> so we talked about the worldly winds, so both of them won't throw us off balance. So Majjhiminakaya 62 there. So now this is, oh, uh, where is it there? Yes. So this is uh, from one of the very beautiful talks from Ajahn Brahm. Always measure upeka, equanimity, by the degree of stillness it creates. So if there is stillness, I think maybe that could answer that question. If there is seeing the end of things, if it leads to viraga, so the fading away of things, fading away of problems, then we are talking about upeka. And then we can actually test it out. Then we can apply it in day-to-day -day life. So Ajahn Brahm carries on and says, once you know what equanimity truly is, you can use it in all aspects of your life, enabling you to do all those things that you don't really like to do. If you do things with equanimity, they don't move the mind. They don't worry the mind. And they don't make the mind shake and tremble. So, if we do shake and tremble, then we know it's not upeka yet. <laughs> then we try to calm it down to an degree where fear, where all these things have a way to be absorbed and have a way to um, disappear. Right, so, balance. Two words that came to mind for me, equanimity that we've talked about before, but also this beautiful term of responsibility. Why do I call it beautiful? Usually when we talk about responsibility in English, we talk about a duty. We talk about something that we're obliged to do and it comes with this like really heavy stuff and we like, oh, I don't want to be responsible really. But if you look at the word, in this way, and take it apart, it's the ability to respond to whatever situation has arisen. And then it doesn't have the same heaviness. It's not the same burden. And we'll be talking about this a little bit more. Right, how can we define balance? Because usually I have a bit of a definition there, and then a kindling agent. It's like, how can you make the feeling grow and become more prominent? So the definition could be as follows. We are non-reactive and we are even-minded. The kindling agent, if we want to bring up this quality in our hearts and minds, is we're always reflecting on something. What are we reflecting on in this, this case? We're reflecting on and we are seeing the conduct and the actions and its results. But what is very important here is that we have to make a distinction between the conduct and the actions of others and the results they will reap and the conduct and the actions 
and the results of our actions. And Upeka really encourages us to take responsibility for what we are actually responsible for, what we bring into a relationship, what we bring to a problem, what we bring into a situation that might be difficult or that might be just so, you know, um, uh, exciting that we all get lost in it, that we all get carried away in it. So it, it is our responsibility, really, and everyone has to take responsibility for themselves. So uh, if you've seen me give talks before, I usually uh, create this journey towards this mind state, uh, towards Upeka, and describe um, all the different stages and all the different um, kind of potholes or, or um, uh, obstacles on the path. So we start off from aversion, from bias, from fear, when we are basically out of balance. So we don't like something, or we think another person, for example, is different from us, so we create this, this distance. We attach. We like, we want to have more of what we like, and we don't want to lose things. We identify. That is an important one. So we say, I am this kind of person. I am an angry person. I am an anxious person person and I will always be and that doesn't agree with what we spoke about before about the transientness about the changeability of things so these things change we are anxious at times but we are actually quite confident and certain at other times so we are not a mind state mind states come and go we have a character but character can be changed and adapted we can overreact to what is happening. So we can literally get carried away by things, by our thoughts, by our fears, by our reactions, if we're not careful. Lose ground, yes. We can over-involve ourselves. So we can have a vested interest and we can have a wrong sense of duty that I spoke about before. So the vested interest, Ajahn Brahm often says, it's like a scientist. When you're really in Upeka, you want to see the experiment um, unbiased and get all the results in without actually knowing what you want the result to be. Uh, because if you are too vested, then you will only see the things that you are looking for and not what is actually there. Um, apathy and disconnection, so we're now getting to the close enemy, they call it, something which is similar to Upeka, but not actually quite Upeka. So when we say, like the young generation would say, whatever, <laughs> or when we say, I don't care, so we usually call that Apurinyana, <laughs> we sometimes call it the big W, the whatever. <laughs> um, indifference and boredom are close to that. So you're not interested, you are kind of numbed out by whatever is happening. And again, then we are not able to uh, conduct the experiment. We are not interested, we are not um, uh, introspective enough, we are not, there, there, there's no energy that flows into trying things out and then we won't actually um, be able to resolve things. Um, we just think that we have to bear and tolerate there is a time for having patience, yes, but we can also do this in a way 
where it's not genuine, where we kind of say, yeah, I'm cool with this, I'm fine, but we're actually not. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, delusion, confusion, est estrangement. So when we just relate without wisdom. And one of those things that comes up with Ajahn Chah, one of the stories about Upeka is there was one monk and he was living in a hut and there was a bit of storms and things happening and the roof sheets started loosening and you know the rain started to come into his kuti and half of the kuti was wet and he didn't fix it. He was saying, I am practicing Upeka. <laughs> I'm practicing just being cool with it. It's all right. You know, I have half a kuti, which is, which is fine. <laughs> I can stay here. And that's when apparently Ajahn Chah told him, this is stupid wisdom. This is the wisdom of a water buffalo. <laughs> so we need to have wisdom as well. And if there is something we need to do, we do it. But we do it calmly. We do it kindly. We do it wisely. All right. So that is kind of the journey towards Upeka. And then I usually, oh yes, I just put the slide there for people um, if you want to go through it and have your own thoughts about these things and see what your own hindrances are or things that I've missed out. Uh, I'm in no way covering all of them here. And then I describe when we have arrived, so to speak. What does balance mean now? It could mean balance and resilience, rooted in reality, but being fle flexible. So that's kind of a re repetition there. Often the word viraga comes up and they translate it as dispassion. But it can also mean just fading away and contentment. So you're able to keep cool. You're able to be kind. You are even-minded and you're peaceful. You are non-reactive. I often think about the chemical um, uh, um, compounds sometimes, some of them, like what was it, chloride or something, is just so reactive. Whatever it comes into contact with is just bang, boom, and big reactions happen. And other elements who have um, their outer layer, um, usually it's eight electrons, they're full, they're complete, they don't react because they don't want to get rid of their electrons or they don't want to get more electrons, they're just, they're balanced. They're fine. They're in a good state. So we see clearly, we respond, but we don't react. We are detached in a healthy way. So we can listen, we can feel, but without identifying with things. Then accountability. So we do own our own actions. We realize we are bringing some things into every relationship, into our own lives, into every situation. What are we actually doing to take out accountability for that? So if someone comes and attacks us and really, you know, gives it to us and says, you're the worst teacher I've ever heard teaching and, whoa, I don't understand at all what you're going on about. Then if we react to that, then we are not owning our actions in a, in a good way. Then we go and ask, okay, what, what didn't you understand? What is it that um, is not okay in this teaching style? And not get uh, triggered by it, hopefully. And we all have our different areas where it's not so easy and others where we have learned a lot and it's no problem. And then if that works, we are independent. We become free. So we are not controlled by other people's emotions anymore and we are not controlled by our own emotions anymore. We are able to reflect, to feel them like a mirror, and to 
have them calm down to get the message from what they're trying to deliver, but without all this strength and uh, all these unwholesome things arising. Okay, great. So there they are again for you to have a look later if you wish. Very good. And I just have a few little more things. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, it's more of a summary that we go through. We have gone through the removing resentment um, suttas in the last four, uh, three sessions. And this is the first one, which basically describes all those qualities. And we can nicely, hopefully, bring it together. So how can we remove resentment towards a person? Um, there is five ways. The first one is metta, is loving-kindness, to see the good in them, to focus on the good in them, and then we uh, can overcome resentment. We can have compassion. We can see that there is like a sickness in another person and we wish to alleviate that sickness, to help them with that sickness, instead of making their lives dif more difficult. We can have equanimity that we talked about, upeka, towards that person. But also, if it's necessary, we can not attend to that person. We can disengage from that person. And that's sometimes which has to happen. If something is really unwholesome, we get into a situation when we realize, ooh, I don't have stability here at all. And if I remain in the same place, it's not going to end well. So we have to pull ourselves back. We still have kindness, we still have compassion, but we have it from a distance, so to speak. We protect ourselves. We protect the other person. We get into a good mind state again, and then we act from there. And then this is the beautiful description of karma here. One should apply the idea of ownership of karma, ownership of action, to the person one resents. This venerable one, here we think about another monk in this sutta, is the owner of his actions, the heir of his actions. The actions, uh, he has actions as his origin, actions as his relative, actions as his result. He will be the heir of any actions he does, good or bad. In this way, one should remove resentment towards that person. So these are the five ways that are described in the suttas. But I am seeing um, time has already moved on. So here we just have them love, care, balance, not paying attention, and then applying the ownership of karma. I think maybe I'll leave it at that. And we can maybe just close our eyes and do a short meditation together and just reflect on what it could mean in our own lives if we come into a situation that is difficult and it is connected with another person that comes to us. A work colleague, a child, um, family member, whatever it might be. And then we usually have, for the Brahma Viharas, we have mantras that can help us to evoke this feeling in us. And Christine Neff offers this one. Everyone is the, their own everyone is on their own life's journey. I have my life, other people have their lives. We are connected 
But we are not responsible for someone else's life, for someone else's actions. I'm not the cause of this person's suffering, nor is it entirely in my power to make it go away, whatever the difficulty, whatever the situation might be. We have some influence, but we often overestimate how much power or control we actually do have. No matter how much I wish I could, this moment is difficult to bear. And yet, I will try to help to the extent that I can. And how can I help? I can only help if I have some stability some clarity, some groundedness, kindness, wisdom, compassion and love. If not, then I'm often making the situation worse. In German we have a word which is called verschlimmbessern, and it basically means you're trying to make something better, but you're actually making it worse. There is, it's like whoa, a, a many compounded word, and we don't really want to do that. Okay, I offer this for your reflection today, and I'm happy to take some questions or comments if there are any from the floor, or aha, online as well we have, that's right, isn't it? But uh, also um, offer as usual, if people in the room here don't want to speak up in a group, um, I will be here before lunch and I'm happy to uh, talk to people individually if that's uh, what people wish to do. Just to be fair, we're, we're going to be alternating between the, sure. um, the physical audience and the online audience. Yes, good, yep, so that's good. So we get, uh, get a good distribution, yes. Because some people from from overseas sometimes they get up at I don't know what time <laughs> because of the time zone to to listen to the live talk. Mm. Okay, anyone from here? Yes, please. I think if you could use the microphone, then the people online can hear it as well. That would be great. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name's Steve, and I'm very curious about a quality which we see in the world. It's a negative quality, and this is a quality we see in conflict of escalation. Like, mm. for example, we see the events in Europe, mm. and we see uh, they have a disagreement, mm. but now they're escalating. The one side is now saying, oh, we must up the scale of our response and then the other side gets offended and we want to up the scale of our response and mm. as they say, maybe we'll end up with a nuclear war by the Correct. end of it. And yes, you look at the history of religion, I've been studying the history of Christian theology 
Yes. And you have people with their opinions about God. One says one thing, the other one says, no, this is different. No, no, your mm. picture of God is wrong. And they mm. become even more extreme mm. in their opposing views. They're not, they don't remain in the centre mm. or close to the centre. When they start to escalate, they move to extreme. Yes. So what is this quality in the, the material man that seeks escalation in opinion, in conflict? There's always this desire in the man to propagate themselves, not just materially, but their, their, their mental qualities, that my opinion mm. will rule the world. Mm. What is this? Mm. I, I think it comes from wanting to overpower someone, but not really understanding where the real power lies. So there is a power that can be used through strength, but it never solves the problem because it always just overpowers one side and then that other side recovers and somehow gathers more power and then come back, comes back and tries to overpower the other side. So I, it just reminds me of when I was a primary school teacher and we would have conflicts in our classroom and I would have a you know chat with the kids and would say like okay if something happens and you know someone gets angry and then what, what how, how do what, what happens you know and then the bad way is that it escalates and I said there comes a point where someone gets so angry that they hit the other person and we end up in hospital for example so just to kind of show them there is a certain danger if we go down that road and is there another way to resolve it when it is um, uh, at, an, at a stage where it's less um, volatile and I always encourage them to if you give in at that lower stage whatever giving in means I mean I can't apply it to all, all those things you have brought up but whatever that means with being able to tolerate something being able to have equanimity so things become still and calm down to such an extent that then wisdom can be applied, that would be the solution. But I mean, I, I can't give you a solution for the war and I can't give you a solution for, for all these kind of things. But I think that's the direction we want to work towards. And I always just realized, yes, I can bring up a certain strength, but my strength is not strong enough um, to oppose the other person. So I would always stop much, much earlier in that relationship. And that would hopefully take out the wind of the sails of this whole process building up and up and up and up and up and up. And I always reflected on morality, really. I realized the further down I get on that track, the further away um, morality is. It gets chucked out for whatever reasons. And we hold on to those reasons and we start to go completely against the five precepts, for example, or uh, very, very basic things. Because we say, oh, now it's war. War has different rules. Well, yes, but you're still the owner of your actions. <laughs> so I, I don't know, does that give you something to ponder about? Yes, yes, thank you very much. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you, Ajahn. I'm 
I'm always impressed as how much effort you put into these uh, <laughs> presentations and for us to, to kind of visualise um, mm. all of this. Thank you very much. Mm. Uh, the first question here is, uh, Dear Arjun, if sukkah is a worldly wind, does that mean that focusing on it Focusing on it arising during meditation can cause unbalance. Thank you. <laughs> it, it can, but um, there is many, many ways, uh, or there is many, many, many different types of sukha, and that's what you start to learn uh, in meditation. And contentment, for example, is also a type of sukha, but it's so much more refined, and it basically pulls you in the right direction. So um, the meditative joys, they can be um, a bit unstable making if you um, get too carried away by them. But if you look for the more subtle and stable ones, they are actually the vehicle into um, deeper meditation for you. And they start to fade away. So um, if you go through the whole process, um, upeka is purified in the fourth jhana and there's lots of um, um, states of happiness uh, piti and sukha and uh, all these beautiful pamoja words that are used in Pali that come up that are used as a vehicle and then start to disappear and even upeka after the fourth jhana once you start to go into the immaterial jhanas Upeka starts to disintegrate and starts to fall apart. But um, they all have their, their meaning and they have their purpose. So we use them as a tool, but we don't um, get carried away by them. So we just make sure if these things do arise, that there is not too much excitement or too much fear. Sometimes positive states can be so powerful that you think you can't can't bear it you think you can't take it but we can <laughs> we get we get used to it so yes that is an unworldly pleasure um, that we're talking about in uh, in meditation it's a mira uh, 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 what was it called Oh, I can't think of the Pali now. Anyway, but uh, the translation is it's an unworldly happiness. Yeah. Okay. I hope that answers the question. Yes, please. Yasmin. Um, just going back to your simile, uh, analogy of the bamboo. Yes. Um, I find that bamboo grows in a grove. Yes. So that gets its strength. So whatever yes. bean comes, it's protected in a way by other bamboos around it. So right. what I'm saying is how much is this journey totally your effort mm. and how much would you not depend mm. uh, depend on other people around you. Right. Yes. I mean we are definitely depending on people but we want to make sure that we trust in the right things and that we choose the people wisely, as the Buddha tells us, and that we also know which resources to use at what time. So in psychology, it's very important to be aware of the resources that do give you balance and to bring them in at the right time. 
For example, if you are in an unbalanced mind state and you think about doing something silly, you know who to call, who will balance you again. So uh, you will have uh, spiritual friends, Kalyanamittas, who bring that in. So when I'm talking about um, the ownership of karma, it is that we realize what we bring into the world, for that we have to be responsible for. But it doesn't mean that we have to say, look, I'm the only agent here, and I can't, can't count or rely on other beings. Please do. Community is very important. Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, <laughs> and also a community like the Buddhist society here, where we meet physically as a group, where we exchange, where we have a meal together, when we talk to each other. Even sometimes when you talk about what you are going through to another person, and the person acts like a mirror, you can understand your thinking pattern through verbalizing it, through having a sounding board. So that can be helpful. Yeah. I wouldn't want to discount it. Yeah. Okay. One more from overseas or out there. Yeah, John, we've got one here on meditation, but I'll just skip that one for the moment. Sure. Just think, um, could possibly come back to that later or okay, tomorrow. Okay, we'll see, yeah. But uh, the next one here is, um, dear Ajahn, how do you give in without being a doormat? <laughs> um, well, do you really do you really give in? We want to make sure we don't give in to our defilements. That's what we want to make sure, and we want to make sure that we uphold and are grounded. In, in virtue and in positive qualities. And whatever that means in a relationship, we maintain that. If you feel that you really want to give and you're happy to give, then you are not a doormat. Then you're actually putting the doormat out with a welcome sign and say, yes, please, I, I have, I'm happy to give. But then if you're realizing something is not going right and you feel like a doormat, then you ask yourself, okay, what can I do to remain kind, to remain compassionate, but to also say, look, um, yes, this is my home. <laughs> I live here and it's not really big and I need the space for myself right now. I care, but, um, you know, consider talking to another person. Or um, you can also reflect to the other people um, that their actions have results. And one of the results is if this situation arises, that's how I can operate with it in this, at this present moment. And it means I have to distance myself. I need safety. So it is to a certain extent a choice, but I know how difficult it is. You know, we end up in a situation and then we're like, oh no, now it happened again. I feel like a doormat. <laughs> and then we have to resolve it. But I think it, it, it can be handled in a way where we, we don't go too far on that track. Or we learn to distance ourselves, we learn to have a bit of um, a breather, and then we can re-engage into a relationship. And sometimes we can't. Certain relationships we just know. I, I, the way I operate now, I just can't engage. And then we have to say, okay, I can't engage. Give other people the opportunity who can, who don't get triggered by what I get triggered. I hope that makes sense. But it's one that comes up a lot. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. Um, Ajahn, today being the Mother's Day and yes. uh, being a mother, uh, yes. I just kind of uh, reflecting on what you just said a while ago. 
uh, of um, if other person's karma and that you are not responsible. Yes. But when it comes to your own child, right? Um, mm. If if you are seeing uh, your own child going through a tough period, mm. um, or they are in a lot of agony, I think you as a mother, uh, you it's that's kind of I don't know. Yeah, especially you kind of take more responsibility. Yep. Okay, you have a, a greater deal of responsibility for. Yes. Yes, the child's temperament, right? Uh, it so it comes to you. It, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Uh, just kind of want to understand how do I, in mm. that uh, state, mm. practice equanimity? Mm, mm, mm. How do I kind of not, um, while helping the mm. child to overcome, mm. but how do you also keep your sanity? Yes. Um, so it comes in degrees. So with children, of course, they are born as vulnerable beings, and as parents, we have a responsibility for them, but. Our responsibility is to give them the tools over a period of time so they become more and more independent. And to not take these things too personal. <laughs> so sometimes they act as a mirror. And then we realize, oh, something which is happening in, in, with that, in, in me, they're reflecting to me, and I have to think about and resolve within myself, take myself out of the situ situation again, reflect, talk to other people, or just sit in meditation and let everything calm down and then see what would be the wise, compassionate response to the suffering of another being. When I talked about compassion, you know, there is compassion fatigue and there is all these problems where we get so bogged down by the suffering of someone else that we have two people suffering instead of one person suffering and the other person actually reaching out and helping. So I think that is, a, that is an issue there. But um, with the children, just... Just reflect on the process and see how much can I trust the child that it can take responsibility for their own actions and keep increasing it over the years because you know there will come a time where they move out of the house and when you have taken too much responsibility, they won't be able to be responsible for themselves. But uh, yes, it's... It is gradual and we learn as we go. Sometimes we're good in certain areas. Sometimes we're not so good in other areas. But um, as long as the child can see and feel your intention and you can take those emotions or the punishments or the power struggle out of the relationship, that will really help. So that the, the child gets a feeling, ah, oh, mom is on my side. She actually wants to help me. And that they understand the actions you are taking, why you are taking those actions. Even though they might be um, difficult or hurtful for the other party. And always I feel the best thing is to involve them. To sit down and listen. Not just assume, ah, you are suffering or you are going through this. I've gone through this when I was a child. But how many years was that ago, you know? The world has changed. So to sit down and say, okay, I feel you are suffering. How is it for you? Can I help you? <laughs> Rather than offering the help already or creating rules and restrictions which might not help the situation as well as they could if the child would be on your side and involved in the whole process. But if there is situations like with a small child where they do something really dangerous, you have to get them out of the danger zone. And then you have to do something. But you get them to a safe place and then you start resolving the problem from there. Do these things make sense? Yeah. Any follow-up or all good? All good. Okay. Okay.
Uh, any more from here? Yes. Okay, please. Thank you Thank for you, your Ajahn. engagement. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, beautifully illustrated talk. Uh, really enjoyed the series. And I think this is a bit of a follow-up to a few of the questions. And I mm. wonder whether uh, um, Opeka is something that you achieve at the end of a journey. It sounds like something that you can only get once in a while. And that the rest of life is like ours, like dysfunctional most of the time. And then you have moments where maybe you find that balance. Mm. And then you're back to being in an unbalance until sure. the right configuration appears. Sure. Reminded of your simile of the chemicals. Mm. And then you have the very reactive chemicals, but even sodium at some point it meets, mm. you know, chlorine and then they stabilize and become salt for a while. Yes. Before the next transformation. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So we, we always have to bring it back to, to reality. So that is important. But I hear that with so many other, other um, kind of concepts. And um, we don't want to discount something because we say, oh, it's too high and we can't go there. And it's not, you know, I mean, we have a life to live. Um, maybe next lifetime or whatever. So we do what we can. So I was talking to the youth group about, um, about trust. And they said, well, I can't trust a person 100%. And I said, yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, you will find some people, like Ajahn Brahm, where you, or someone else where you feel their minds are really pure, their hearts are really kind, and they have no ill will or no bad energy you know, that would come your way, and then you trust fully. But with all the other people, you still want to build trust. So you start where you are. You start with the um, areas in that relationship where you can trust. Like with your child, you try things out and you, you, you see how it goes. And then you give more and more trust to the other being. You say, oh, okay, I gave them so much. They made a few mistakes, but we spoke about it and we found a solution. Now I can trust them more. In a relationship, you, you um, meet someone new. Of course, you don't tell them about your whole life story right from the start and overwhelm them and expect, oh, I want you to be the person that I will be you know, spending the rest of my life with and I can trust you 100%. No, okay, start with 20, but build it up and then you will get there. Same, same with Upeka. So we are more in the first kind of um, 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 view that I described in the beginning getting back into balance, but please do. Build up as much balance as you can and then use it in your day-to-day -day life. And if it gets lost, try and regain it. And if you have the opportunity to come to a monastery or go to a retreat, build it up to a higher degree and then take that energy back into your life and keep going. And then it builds up. And then eventually, yes. But it is a very, very deep concept. I mean, when we talk about rebirth and ending this all, it is upeka. It is just watching on without getting involved. And you don't even want to get involved in a new existence anymore at that point. And Arjun Brahm talks about the bus just passing uh, by the bus stop and not seeing you because you're so motionless. So just to, to get the idea where it is moving. And, um, yeah, just get inspired by it. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't throw it to the wayside just because it, it seems too difficult. <laughs> don't want to give up. <laughs> yes? Ajahn, it's just coming on to quarter two, yeah. so we thought we'd wrap up. But there is, there is one question relating to meditation. I'll get um, whoever's running it tomorrow On evening. Monday to bring it yeah. in. Yes, that's so a good idea. We'll yep. Put that 
number one on the list. Sure, okay? that's fine because it, it, the, the topic tomorrow will be most like, likely along the lines of, um, of balance and Upeka. Okay. So thank you very much. We finished the four Brahma Viharas. Yay! <laughs> it's, it's taken a while. But uh, yeah, as, as Richard said, it's, it's also a process for me to just have my ears and my heart open for all the things that come together and then just to compile it together and hopefully to present some kind of package that makes, makes sense and can be maybe also used as a reference later down the track. Okay. Uh, let us pay respect to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha and then go along to lunch if you want to come for lunch, which will be at 11, I think, isn't it? Yeah, wonderful, okay. Do we do the arahant or do we just bow? What do we usually do? Both. Both? Okay, oh, very good. <laughs>